listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Happy New Year and welcome back. Today's guest is Laren Spire, Director of Pro Bono Programs at Columbia Law School in New York City. We discussed her career, law school pro bono initiatives, the student perspective on access to justice, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Laren, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. So I wanted to start things off on a lighter note. Um, Since our program is called the Pro Bono Happy Hour, and you are a well-known food and cocktail writer and blogger, could you give us some recommendations or tips about where to go for a great happy hour? Um, Sure. Well, to be fair, I'm semi-retired these days. But yes, for many years, I did a lot of food and cocktail writing. And in New York, a lot of people in the pro bono community know about the 8th Street Wine Cellar because it's somewhere I've hosted pro bono week get-togethers. And they have a great happy hour every day between 4 and 8. So it's right by Washington Square Park, and you should go there and tell them I sent you. That is awesome. And now maybe they can sponsor our program. But (laughs) (laughs) So that's a fantastic tip. And any other sort of beverages or cocktails that you're enjoying or recommending for the winter season? Ah, yes. Well, now that winter is upon us, I have a tendency to turn to whiskey-based cocktails. So I tend to go for something very traditional like a rye Manhattan to keep away the winter chill. That is amazing. And that got a huge smile and a huge thumbs up from producer Dave. So uh, (laughs) I think we will be taking that recommendation to heart. So, okay, now back to regularly scheduled business. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your journey to Columbia Law School? Sure. Um, Prior to law school, I worked for nonprofits in in Boston in the social justice arena. And then when I graduated from NYU, I was a litigator briefly in private practice for a few years immediately upon graduation. Um, And then as I was starting to search for more public interest-focused position, which is what I should have been doing in the first place, (laughs) uh, a fellow NYU law grad had passed my resume along to a nonprofit that was using the then somewhat fledgling internet to support pro bono and public interest lawyers, where um, I became the first full-time hire. Um, you may know that nonprofit as Pro Bono Net. <laughs> and Pro Bono Net led me to a 15-year career in the pro bono world. Um, after I left Pro Bono Net, I created the first pro bono practice management position at Debois, where I stayed for eight years. And now I'm at Columbia running their pro bono program. Well, I'm excited about that. As someone who has a Columbia University diploma hanging on my wall, I feel an extra close kinship to a Morningside Heights and a (laughs) connection. (laughs) So before we move on to talk more about um, your current position and law school pro bono, what is it in your personality, experience, nature, what do you think formed your interest in a pro bono or public interest legal career? Huh, that's an interesting one. I haven't given a lot of thought to that. But I think even in college, as I was taking courses, I was a sociology and women's studies, um, sociology major, women's studies minor. And I think I was just always fascinated by what what I then called study of the obvious, but it was like study of interactions between various groups of people and why they were the way they were, and really feeling the need to be out there working to make the world a better place. And I very quickly learned that for me, 
I wanted that to be part of my daily work. Um, I've, you know, I've had some other positions here and there that were not focused on social justice, and it just, it was harder for me to get up and go to work in the morning. So for me, that was something that always um, motivated me. So once I stumbled into the world of pro bono, it was a real click for me. It was, wow, not only do I get to do something every day that makes the world a better place, but I get to help others do the same. And that really has worked for me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So what do you do now as the director of pro bono programs at the law school? How do you spend your time? Well, I'm responsible for finding and creating pro bono opportunities for our students uh, that enable them to do meaningful law-related work under appropriate supervision, (laughs) because they're still law students, obviously, um, that has an impact on the larger community. So what that means from a daily basis is communicating regularly with partner organizations, legal services organizations, and law firms who are doing pro bono work, um, talking to students about their interests, and working with all of them together to develop appropriate projects. Um, So sometimes it's phone calls, it's emails, it's meetings, but all of these things to communicate and create opportunities for the students that are meaningful and that will help the legal services organizations accomplish what they want to get done. And of course, Columbia has a pro bono requirement, so I'm tracking (laughs) all the work that our students do towards the graduation requirement. Um, I answer questions from students and graduates about the New York 50-hour pro bono rule. and that is kind of my day-to-day work. Awesome. We'll, we'll dig in into both of those a little deeper in a minute, but is there anything that you wish you could be doing or spending your time on that you just sort of never seem to get around to? Well, there's always a lot of students, so there's, there's a lot of work to do. Um, I think that in the nature of my work, I, I wish I could conduct more of my business in person I feel like in the pro bono world, fostering relationships is incredibly important. And I do get a chance to meet with our partner, our pro bono partners from time to time, but not as often as I, I want to. I mean, everybody's busy and email is more efficient, but I think there's something really important about meeting with people face-to-face and those relationships make our pro bono work stronger. That is definitely one theme that a lot of our guests have brought to the program. Pro bono is a relationship business, for sure. Absolutely. Um, So how do you think, looking back from when you were in law school as a student, um, how has pro bono changed at law schools, and how have the students themselves changed? Well, that's a sort of a funny question, because I actually... Uh, I went to NYU, which is a law school that didn't have a pro bono requirement. I didn't do any pro bono work in law school, which is very strange for me to say out loud. Um, In law school, I was really busy with things like the Law Review Show, (laughs) and I started an acapella singing group in law school, but that still exists to this day, which I'm kind of proud of. Quite a legacy, for sure. I do remember several friends participating in the Unemployment Action Center, but I really don't remember there being a a plethora of opportunities. I mean, what I find now is that the students I interact with are incredibly, incredibly motivated, and they're really eager to get out into the real world. They're really eager to take their their legal knowledge and make a difference. Um, I think that pro bono gives them a, a great structured mechanism to do this with appropriate training and supervision. Um, and students are not shy about reaching out if they think 
there's something that we don't yet offer that they want to create. And I love that enthusiasm. And I always um, am excited to build new projects with students based on their ideas. I, I think for any number of reasons, that sea change is real and dramatic and is, it, you know, kind of goes beyond your experience at NYU and my law school experience at Duke. I mean, just in the sort of decades, <laughs> at least for me, since I was in <laughs> yep. school, just the whole public interest and pro bono resources at law schools have gone from like nothing to flourishing. And it's, it's an amazing and it's a really productive change because I've always thought if we inculcate people <laughs> when they are new in their career, then they've set habits and practices and values for the rest yeah. of their career. It's, it's like exercise, you know? I wish I had adopted an exercise regime earlier in my life. I, I would be a lot better for it, but it, it's true for the pro bono ethic as well. So I think it's a really exciting development um, and um, positive influence on, on the profession writ large, you know, from, from law schools up and down. What types of issues grab students' attention? What, what do they feel passionately about these days? Well, I see students, because I'm working with so many students, I see students who are passionate about everything. Um, they do tend to focus. So we have a lot of student groups that focus on um, particular issues. I find that um, our immigration projects are very, very popular, uh, especially now. Um, LGBT rights work, um, and we have a number of very strong domestic violence-related projects, and all of those are always super popular uh, with students. And I also see a growing desire for um, working with small businesses, microenterprises. And so I'm always on the hunt for more pro bono opportunities like that and more transactional opportunities in general um, because, uh, you know, I think that's a, a huge part of the pro bono world and one that they're not necessarily seeing uh, as early as they might otherwise. Yeah, and I'm sure it's intuitive, right? Most people, when they think pro bono, snap their fingers, what comes to mind? It's something court-based, right? It's it's going. Right. And Columbia in particular, I mean, this is, I'm sort of dating myself, I'm sure, but there are a, it, it is a great training ground for prominent corporate lawyers <laughs> who are going to go on. And so this is, I'm going to interrupt you yeah, because I, this is push a back. we are constantly trying to bust. Um, at Columbia, because I and and I look. I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I work in the office that does all the career advising for the public interest, uh, government and human rights minded students. And I see our students going off into the world, and our grads are out there in the world as amazing public interest, government and human rights leaders. So you know, it may be that that sort of quote traditional Columbia path has a lot of people going straight into a big law firm, and then from there going on possibly to government, public interest, human rights, um, or in-house. I think it's not as corporate-heavy as that myth that is still lingering for whatever reason. I think our numbers are fairly consistent with other law schools, and, I, you know, I, I, I'm seeing public interest students at Columbia supported and motivated and continuing the pro bono work throughout their careers, no matter where they are, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. And shout out to public interest, career-minded students. I am thinking about the segment of the pie of students who are going to go into private practice. 
Um, yes, right. There's always going to be right. There's always going to be some portion of the class <laughs> who is going to go to to sort of law firms, um, and that some portion of that group of the class are going to go to non-litigating practice areas. Absolutely. That that said, um, I do find, and having worked at Double Voice for years and years, that a lot of you know corporate attorneys don't necessarily do solely transactional pro bono. Some of them like to keep their fingers in the litigation world, um, but a lot of them do. And I think it's it's great that they are, are inspired to do so, hopefully based on some things that w- they've done uh, as law students or beyond. Oh, yeah. And I think it goes back to planting the seeds early when they have that comfort level that they're not only their practice area, right? That's one of the things that's great about lawyers is we read, we think, there's a little bit of that generalist in us that you don't want in your brain surgeon. So I think that's a (laughs) a great thing to have implanted in people um, from the get-go. That said, I think people with a variety of long-term interests could be interested in helping nonprofits and social entrepreneurs and mom and pops. And I think there's a real feeling that so much of pro bono work is tied to um, alleviating systemic poverty and yeah. right, and so community economic development and things that bring jobs and things that bring future um, are all very meaningful opportunities. So I, I think that's a great area for, for people to be involved in. So I am intrigued, and I bet our listeners will be too, by something that sounds both super fun and super meaningful, spring break caravans. Could you tell <laughs> us about those? Sure. Um, our spring break caravans are trips that happen each year. They're student-driven, so they are proposed by students um, and run by students, although they are approved by us, um, where students go and they spend their spring break doing pro bono work out in the world, all over the world. And this year we'll have about 100 students going off on about 18 caravans. And they are going all over the place and doing some amazing work. So what are some examples of places they've gone and the types of work they've done? So we had students who work uh, in the International Refugee Assistance Project go to Jordan to work with Iraqi and Syrian refugees. And sometimes these are um, clients that they have been working on as pro bono clients during the year, so they actually get to meet them in person, which is pretty exciting. Um, And they conduct client intakes and uh, meet with local NGOs and learn more about the situation facing refugees on the ground in the Middle East. So that's one particular project. Um, We have students... Um, who go down to the Miami-Dade Public Defender and do work with them. Um, We have students who go to South Africa, do human rights work, um, doing interviews. Um, The past few years it's involving um, education rights, so they'll go to different communities and and do interviews with folks in schools, trying to build the groundwork for human rights um, matters. Gosh, this year we have students going down to the Dilly, Texas Immigration Detention Center, which is going to be a very intense pro bono project. And these are students who are going down to represent immigrant and minority, uh, immigrant and refugee mothers and their children at the detention center down in Dilly. 
and help prep the clients for their credible fear interviews and that sort of thing. So it's real hands-on work, but it's 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 widely varied and it's it's exciting because students get to go out there and work really hard for a week. Sounds amazing and intense. And who plans these trips and how do they get paid for? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I know that's what everyone's wondering. Yep. The students submit their ideas. And there's a little back and forth between me and this potential supervisor of the legal services organization that's going to host them just to make sure that all the pieces are in place in terms of training and supervision. And then once they're approved, the students apply. Um, Columbia provides a, a, a teeny tiny bit of funding. We have recently been funded a bit by our Columbia PILF, the Public Interest Law Foundation. So it's a separate nonprofit Um but it's you know sort of under the Columbia rubric, but it is a separate nonprofit, and they have given a grant that provides need-based funding uh, for students who apply. Um, so that way, more students who may not otherwise be able to self-fund can go. Um, also, the students do raise money uh, on their own through things like you know cocktails for caravans, karaoke for caravans, bake sales, all yep. kinds of things. Yep. They're very creative. Um, to support their travel. Who typically goes, meaning like what year of school, or is it all over the lot? It's all over the line. So everyone from 1Ls to LLMs. I mean, we tell the student leaders that we would prefer that they give preference to LLMs and 3Ls since their last year. But um, really, people go from across the board. That's amazing. It's it's such a smart and exciting project to make use of sort of time and give people such beefy experiential opportunities to really make a difference. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and, it's incredible. And yeah. they always come back with incredible, amazing stories. And we do a panel where they talk about the work that they did. And, you know, it's I think it's amazing for students who maybe haven't done pro bono or taken on that sort of responsibility yet to hear what what real work the students actually did on these caravan trips. Yeah, I, I, I'd imagine it's life-changing, not just for the clients being served, but also for your students. Um, Absolutely. What are some of the other programmatic elements of the pro bono program um, that you could share? Yeah, so in addition to caravans and the what I call the in-house pro bono proje- projects, so those are the more structured projects that I either build on my own with legal services organizations and law firms or with student groups um, and legal services organizations and law firms, um, we do uh, programming about pro bono. We have uh, a panel every year about law firm pro bono and how one would use law firm pro bono no matter what they want to do in their career. So, you know, whether that's leaving a law firm, whether that's going in-house, whether that's transitioning from, you know, law firm to public interest or not, you know, how does pro bono make you a better lawyer and get you to where you want to go in your career? Um, and we also have a lot of resources about evaluating pro bono at law firms. Um, I do a lot of advising about pro bono at law firms and meeting the various pro bono requirements and how to plug people into um, appropriate opportunities. Um, Another piece that's sort of tangentially touching the pro bono program is we have an externship class on pro bono practice and design. 
So this is a class where there's a weekly seminar where we explore how and why pro bono is an integral part of legal services delivery and how it's beneficial to each of the, the, the factions involved. And students take the seminar, and then they have a field placement at legal services organizations that utilize pro bono attorneys to figure out, you know, are they doing it well? Could it be done better? Is there a better model? You know, that kind of thing. Cool. That's a great variety of uh, pro bono offerings and, and education and, and opportunities. I, I wanted to circle back and talk a little bit about mandatory pro bono that you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, Columbia requires that students perform at least 40 hours in order to graduate. So could you tell us a little bit more about how that works? How's the requirement administered? And sort of off the record, wink, wink, what what do you think of mandatory pro bono for our law students? I, I think it's a great thing, off the record or on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Columbia's requirement was established uh, approximately 25 years ago, um, so before I certainly wasn't instrumental in getting it off the ground. Um, and it's one of really only about, I think I may be off on this number, uh, approximately 30 schools in the country to have a pro bono requirement. I mean, I, I kind of... I think it's a little surprising, given our ethical obligations as attorneys, that more don't have this requirement. Um, but this requirement is one of the reasons I came to Columbia. I think I think it's important, and I think um, you know I wanted to be somewhere where a lot of pro bono work was being done. Um, so our students are required to do 40 hours of approved pro bono work um, sometime after their first year and before they graduate. So they're still allowed to do pro bono their first year, but that counts as voluntary, not mandatory. I think the notion is we don't want them to feel pressure to do anything that would interfere with their schoolwork their first year. Um, so, you know, students are can select from any of these in-house projects, as I mentioned, or they can propose something on their own, as long as it meets our guidelines. Um, so, so as I said, I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, it opens up students to the idea of, of meeting our ethical obligations as lawyers, um, and many students report on their evaluations, which they are required to do to um, get credit. They're required to do an evaluation, and their supervisor is required to do an evaluation. Um, but they report on those evaluations that the pro bono work they've done as part of that requirement has made them more likely to do pro bono work going forward. I mean, not all of them, but many of them. <laughs> that is great data, actually, because there have been kind of episodic studies about whether pro bono at the beginning of your career leads to a lifelong commitment of pro bono and attitudes. And so it's great to have some empirical data. <laughs> and, and, and Yeah. I mean, we have this little bit, this little data point. And yep. we've recently started doing um, a five-year survey of our grads. And we yep. do ask some questions about pro bono. We're only in our third year of doing that. So like over time, I hope to build some data and be able to connect the connect the dots. Yeah. We'll see. So is there anything that you would like to change or improve about the requirement or the implementation and administration of the requirement? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's a, a great requirement. I think that because there's a lot of moving parts, it's just hard to get students to do everything on time. And there's often people I'm hounding towards deadlines. But I mean, all in all, I think it's great because we get feedback from the students. It's great because we get feedback from the supervisors. And ultimately, you know, we can see what kind of work was um, the most interesting to them. I think I'd like to improve some of my tracking of the different types of work so that I can analyze what students gravitate towards e- even better than I do now. And I think that'll be helpful in 
uh, developing new programs for them. So that harkens to about, to, back to what we talked about earlier. If you had endless time, right, endless hours in the day, <laughs> you could work on tracking. <laughs> no, I would have somebody else work on tracking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> endless resources. We could delegate tracking. Yeah. That would be amazing. So yeah. let's talk about sort of a related requirement. That is the New York State uh, bar, the admission requirement to do mm -hmm. 50 hours of pro bono before you're admitted to the bar. We've talked about this several times on the program with different guests in different contexts. And I'm curious from where you sit, um, just a little description of the requirement and the implementation. And, and what do you think about this? Because this is slightly different than law students in school. This is, you know, people in order to be admitted to the bar. So what do you think of this requirement? Yeah, I mean, so as you mentioned, the requirement is that all all of those folks who want to be admitted to the New York bar are required to do 50 hours of pro bono work um, before they are admitted. Um, that definition of pro bono, however, is quite broad, <laughs> quite broad, and um, I mean, much more broad, in fact, than the Columbia requirement. So most of our students have very little problem um, meeting that requirement because some of the things that they would do um, that wouldn't count for Columbia, like spend the summer working at a government public interest human rights organization, even if they get a stipend, that does not count for Columbia because they got paid, but it would count for New York regardless of the stipend. Um, so they don't have trouble meeting that requirement. I, I generally... I do think it's a, it's a good thing. I think it shows the world that New York cares about this. I think that it is a step in the right direction of increasing access to justice. I think the one lost, big lost opportunity is that um, the courts, nobody is tracking the data. Um, you know, back to tracking again. Nobody's tracking the data electronically of where these folks are doing work, um, what kind of work, you know, what types of organizations they're doing it for. And I think that data could be used in a meaningful way to divert resources and you know, boost up pro bono programs and legal services in a manner that's responsive to it. That is a missed opportunity for sure. Um, in terms of using reliable information to make policy decisions to inform us going forward. So, yeah, that's too bad. What, if anything, is on the horizon at the law school in terms of new pro bono or social justice initiatives? Do you have anything cooking or that you see coming down the pike? Um, well, I think students seem to be somewhat interested in cross-disciplinary collaborations. Um, you know, we've had some, some social justice discussions with folks in the arts at Columbia, and that's definitely very different from the way lawyers do things. <laughs> and, um, so there's definitely been some interest in that. And I'm also seeing some interest, especially post-election, in cross-school collaborations, which I don't know how much of there has been in the past. Um, I think we'll see m more of both of these things going forward. And as far as new projects, like I'm always on the lookout to develop new projects. I don't, there's nothing, I don't have anything percolating right this second, but I'm sure by the end of the year, I would have a few more things that aren't, don't exist now. All right. Well, we'll have to check back in and, and get some updates down the road. Sure. <laughs> I wanted to talk about um, a recent article that you published. It is called 
quick tips for enhancing your law school pro bono program. And I, I thought several of the <laughs> tips were really universally relevant across a variety of pro bono settings, whether you're in a legal services organization or at a law firm or wherever you are. And for people who are interested, you can find the article online. It's in the December 2016 issue of the NALP Bulletin. And mm -hmm. quick shout out to your co-author, Carolyn Goodwin, yeah. the Director of Public Service and Pro Bono at the Boston University School of Law. And okay, let's talk about three of the tips. The first one is use social media to promote your pro bono program. What's that all about? So, I, you know, coming from a bit of a technology blogger background, I'm always <laughs> excited to use technology and social media. And I think, you know, our students, our community, everybody is out there interacting on social media. So it would behoove us to do so as well. And it really, um, is a a little bit of a low hanging fruit you can you can set up some basic recurring posts um, you can hi quickly and easily highlight student work you can post tips and it's sh it's just a quick and easy way to interact with students and uh the community so you know, for example we always follow all the organizations that our students go on where our students are posted during caravans and you know we tweet at each other and there's pictures of the students and things like that it's, it's it's it can be a lot of fun yeah and i think even quote unquote conservative law firms are you know getting into the yeah. social media game maybe belatedly but you know we're getting there we're getting there so you've got to go where the people are and if you want to communicate you have to know your audience and uh tailor accordingly so tip 2 develop recognition programs what's that all about yeah, so especially in a situation like mine where there's a requirement, so you know that everybody's doing 40 hours, let's say, I think it's important to highlight those, especially law students. You know, law students are very busy, and to highlight those who go above and beyond the call of duty. So we have an annual dinner where we honor, among other things, students who have done over 100 hours of pro bono work and our student project and caravan leaders. And I think it's important. They put a lot of either they're putting in their own pro bono hours to do the work or they're putting their hours in to organize these projects in addition to usually doing the projects. And I think the recognition goes a long way. And, you know, it's something they can put on their resume and talk about in interviews. Um, and it's a good experience for them. And I think that applies in a variety of settings. You know, people oh, people enjoy being recognized. It motivates and inspires. And we think about, you know, a lot of law firm pro bono recognition events we've talked about on this program, pro bono in the park and, and other things that guests have done. And I think beyond being fun, there really are impactful purposes to these activities. So there's... I agree. Although I've heard in my time in the pro bono world, I've yeah. heard a, a, counter, a counter argument to that, which is we shouldn't recognize it because it's expected of everyone. Yeah, I think those are the same people that don't like to use the word volunteer because you're not really <laughs> volunteering. It's part of your obligation. So right. sometimes we just have to use shorthands because English and grammar fails us. And sometimes, you know, we do want to be rewarded for filing our taxes. You know, we like need a right. little now, treat. I'm not saying so, I agree with that yeah. philosophy. I'm just yeah. saying it's out there. Oh, yeah. The and I, I do agree that an undercurrent is 
yeah, it, it's the right thing to do. So you know, there is this right. like good in and of itself. So yes, absolutely. Um, so the third tip I wanted to talk about is remember that students are our best ambassadors. What do you mean by that? Well, I've noticed that sometimes we as administrators at law schools pass along information to students, but they may not receive it as strongly as they might when they receive it from a peer. So hearing from Susie's student who did the pro bono project that you are interested in telling you directly what a great experience it was and what she got out of it, it might be different from me as the director of pro bono programs telling a student about it. A hundred percent agreed. First of all, peer pressure works. So let's <laughs> yes, leverage it, it. Let's <laughs> leverage it and role modeling for good. Second, and this comes up a lot at law firm pro bono programs where you're the pro bono responsible person, you're the professional, and you send out email after email after email, delete, 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 right? Same message, same messenger. Well, how about getting other messengers, right? Let's show that this isn't a one-trick pony or that there's only one person who has skin in the game, but that... Our bench is broad and deep and top down and bottom up. So I think different voices are important and people who have had amazing, however they define amazing, pro bono experiences uh, are our best recruiters and ambassadors. Agreed. So, I mean, yeah. I actually employed that strategy quite effectively at Double Voice where you know, one of the things I did was go to, I strategically went to corporate department Um, individual team meetings. We had a number of teams within the corporate department and had people talk to each other, talk to the group about their pro bono work. And it was fascinating because people didn't necessarily, within the same practice group, didn't necessarily know about the pro bono work that others had done. And especially when it was coming from a more senior associate or junior partner, it was a, it was an excellent. Yeah, I, I just had to sit back and watch. It was fa- it was fabulous. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it was an excellent recruiting tool. Yep, that is a great tip and a, a great example. So, you're very involved in both the New York State Bar and the New York City Bar. And as we talked about with the 50-hour rule, New York is such a laboratory for new pro bono offerings. What's coming next? Are there, is there anything that you're excited about that that's coming down mm-hmm. the line? Um. Well, I see, once again, talking about collaboration, I think folks, you know, organizations seem to be a lot more open to collaboration than potentially they were in the past. And I don't know if that's because resources are limited and people want to leverage that. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing you know, increased use of technology to leverage resources, cross-organization collaboration to leverage resources. You know, things like there's discussion about centralized intake so that, um, you know, a client who might do intake with one organization, and if they are not accepted, then they don't have to go through it yet again with another organization um, who might have different requirements as to who's eligible for services. So, you know, there's there's different things percolating, but I don't, I don't have one driving force that I see right now. 
Okay, we'll stay tuned on that too. But I like the ideas of collaborating. I think there really has been this awakening that we're stronger together, you know, and that whether necessity is the mother of invention or not, I think that's a common theme. And also efficiency, right? We just have to be smarter about how we do all of this. So I think right. your point about intake uh, speaks to that as well. So you are incredibly well situated for this next question. What advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? Well, I always say do, do pro bono work early and often. <laughs> but um, in addition to that, uh, I say talk to everyone you meet who does work that you find interesting and talk to them about how they got there. I, I think I, I'm one of those people who wants to know everything that's on the buffet before I can make a decision. And I think there's a lot of paralysis like that in terms of legal careers. You know, you kind of, if you don't know what's out there, you don't know what's out there. And so the second you start talking to people who do things that are interesting, you find out it opens a whole new door to what might be out there in terms of possibilities for a legal career. And I would strongly encourage young lawyers to do that, even if it's a little, you know, it's networking, quote unquote, and they don't like it and might go outside their comfort zone, but it's really important. I love that. And that's where I think you just have to get behind, you have to get beyond websites, right? <laughs> you have to, and, and market, you have to really talk to people. And that's where I think law schools are so helpful because they have a great alumni network and they can help make connections. And that's also where, again, you know, I'm so old, but email is so great because <laughs> you can email people and they'll respond or they won't respond, but it's not embarrassing. It's, you know, it's sort of, and I think people genuinely like to be helpful. They like to talk about themselves and <laughs> they're, they're happy to share their stories. So it's. Well, and I also think that you'd be hard pressed to find a person who hasn't benefited from somebody else's assistance. And so I think most of us really feel an obligation to pay it forward. If somebody did that for us, opened a door, made a phone call, connected uh, connected you to somebody for your career. Why would you not do that on, you know, on somebody else's behalf? Yeah, I think the first step is getting up your courage to make the ask, right, to, yeah. to put yourself mm -hmm. out there. And it, it will pay dividends. So I agree with that. That's a great tip. Um, who is your pro bono or access to justice role model? And feel free to give more than one. Well, I've had the privilege of working with and meeting some, some wonderful people uh, over the course of my career two of which are no longer with us, so I'm going to start with them. But Hannah Cohn, who used to be the executive director of the Rochester Volunteer Legal Services Project, and Tanya Neiman of the San Francisco Bar uh, Volunteer Legal Services Program were people who crossed my path, path while I was at Pro Bono Net, and they were both wonderful mentors and incredibly inspiring to me. And uh, I always think of them quite fondly and think about the kind of public interest leader I, I would like to become someday. Um, the other person who is happily still with us is Lillian Moy, who is the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. I mean, she's somebody who I've crossed paths with her this whole time, and being more involved in the state bar now, I get to see her more often. But she, you know, she's also a wonderful men mentor and role model. She's always she's always out there. She's al always has an opinion. Um, always trying to push boundaries and do bigger and better things and increase access to justice. And um, she's somebody who I turn to for advice and her 
most recent advice to me um, was think big, which I think is a great bit of advice for anybody out there in the pro bono public interest world. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Those are inspiring examples. Let's end with this. If you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about pro bono or access to justice? So many things. But if I had to pick one. Or two. It's okay. <laughs> I'll start with one, which will cascade, I think, like a massive, 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 massive increase of funding for legal services. You know, I think that with that, you can increase pay for public interest lawyers. You know, in my personal opinion, a public interest lawyer should be making as much as a first-year associate in a firm, or the gap should not be as gappy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it could, you know, increasing funding could ex expand the network of or organizations. It could upgrade technology for legal services. It could, you know, enable organizations to proliferate proliferate so that they're everywhere, you know, like your local post office or something like that. I think the funding could go a long way in increasing access to justice. Sure. More resources, more justice. It makes <laughs> perfect sense. So thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shalaren, for joining us today. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the honest feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. The next program in the Esther Lardent Leadership in Pro Bono series, a conversation with Tim Mayopoulos, the president and CEO of Fannie Mae, is scheduled for January 25th in Washington, D.C. And registration is now open for our annual conference, which will be in March. If you're interested, act now to take advantage of discount registration rates. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you.